Okay, this morning we're in Haggai chapter 2, and we'll be starting this morning in verse 8. We'll be finishing up uh, Haggai's second message. And let's uh, open with a word of prayer. Father, we do thank you for your word. We thank you for the things you teach us through your word. We pray that as we study this morning, we will be able to uh, see and understand uh, what it says, and then also to make the application in our lives um, to see what encouragement it can give us, what warnings we may take from it, um, that you would use your word to help us to grow. We pray you bless our time now as we study in Christ's name. Amen. Okay, what we're going to do for reading this morning is we're going to start in verse 6, Haggai chapter 2, and read through verse 19. Right. Like to start. This is what the Lord Almighty says. In a little while, I will once more shake the heavens and the earth, the sea and the dry land. I will shake all nations, and what is desired by all nations will come, and I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord Almighty. The silver is mine, and the gold is mine, declares the Lord of hosts. The latter glory of this house shall be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts, and in this place I will give peace, declares the Lord of hosts. On the 24th of the ninth month, in the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came to Haggai the prophet, saying, This is what the Lord Almighty says. Ask the priest what the law says. If a man carries holy meat in the fold of his garment and touches bread with this fold, or cooked food, wine, oil, or any other food, will it become holy? And the priest answered and said, No. Then Haggai said, If a person defiled by contact with a dead body touches one of these things, does it become defiled? Yes, the priest replied, it becomes defiled. Then Haggai said, So it is with this people and this nation in my sight, declares the Lord. Whatever they do and whatever they offer, they are defiled. But now do consider from this day onward, before one stone was placed on another in the temple of the Lord. How did you fare? When one came to a heap of twenty measures, there were but ten. When one came to the wine vat to draw fifty measures, there were but twenty. I smote you in every work of your hands with blasting wind, mildew, and hail. Yet you did not come back to me, declares the Lord. From this day on, from this twenty-fourth day of the ninth month, give careful thought to the day when the foundation of the Lord's temple was laid. Give careful thought. Is the seed still in the barn? Even including the vine, the fig tree, the pomegranate, and the olive tree, it has not borne fruit. Yet from this day on, I will bless you. Okay, so we've been looking at the uh, Haggai second prophecy, and that was given to encourage the Jews. Uh, if you remember, the first prophecy was the way God used to get the Jews to go back to rebuilding the temple. They had stopped for 15 years. And so Haggai's first message was really get back to building the temple, get started again. And they had done that. And, and so, uh, you know, after um, a couple months of building, they run into some opposition, you know, during the Feast of Booths when they were supposed to give thanks for all their food. They had a minimal harvest. You know, there was some disappointment there. So this second prophecy was given to encourage them. 
And one of the things that they were doing, what happened is when they saw the new temple being built, the men who were old enough to have seen Solomon's temple before it was destroyed looked at this new temple and they just said, it is nothing in comparison to Solomon's temple. You know, why are we even bothering building this thing? You know, they were very disappointed in it. And so, uh, he's a, you know, God through Haggai is addressing this issue, this disappointment in this new temple. Um, and so he talks about what's going to happen in the future. And that started in verse 6. Um, he says, once more in a little while, I'm going to shake the heavens and the earth. Shake all the nations. So this is talking about a, uh, this catastrophic event that's going to happen in the future. And then they will come with their wealth and bring it to Jerusalem and God will then glorify his temple. And so that's what we, we saw in verses 6 and 7 uh, last week. When we were looking at that, we talked about some different timelines of prophecy. So when we look into the future, it's, it's called eschatology. Eschatos is a Greek word for last. So it's the study of last things. <coughs> study of future things and we talked about the difference between you know our churches being premillennial versus <coughs> the amillennial and the postmillennial timelines and I wanted to just briefly touch on you know why are we premillennial so let's turn to Revelation chapter 20 Revelation chapter 20. And we will read verses 1 through 7. And we'll read around. So if Marie would like to start for us. And I saw an angel coming down out of heaven, having the key to the abyss, and holding in his hand a great chain. Chapter 20 verse 2. two. Yes. He sees the dragon... He seized the dragon, that ancient serpent, who is the devil or Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. He threw him into the abyss and locked and sealed it over him to keep him from deceiving the nations anymore until the thousand years were ended. After that, he must be set free for a short time. I saw thrones on which were seated those who had been given authority to judge, and I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of their testimony about Jesus and because of the word of God. They had not worshipped the beast or its image and had not received its mark on their foreheads or their hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were completed. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. Over such, the second death has no power. For they will be priests of God and of Christ, and they will reign with him for a thousand years. When the thousand years are completed, Satan will be released from his prison. Okay. How many times do you see the words a thousand years? A lot. <laughs> Did you count them? You didn't, 
I did, yes. I'll let you look too. I'll, I'll let you look also. In these seven verses, I know in seven verses, how many times do you see the term a thousand years? I got six. Six. I almost need to underline them to count. Six times in seven verses, we have the term a thousand years. So, yeah, it's a millennium. Yeah, a thousand years is a millennium. You know, so we believe there is a millennium. Why? Because the Bible says so. It's awful hard to dispute what this actually says. Now, you can reject it, or you can try to reinterpret it, or ignore it, yeah. So if you're all millennial, you're saying there is no millennium. You're basically ignoring this passage. Um, if you're post-millennial, which means you believe that Christ will return at the end of the millennium, that means the millennium stretches from Christ's death on the cross until whenever he returns. Is that a thousand years? No, it's over two. Right, it's about 2,000 already. So again, you're not taking it literally. So the only way you can take it literally, I'll bring up my, my chart again here. <laughs> so in church age, we're here. There's a seven-year period of the, you know, it's Daniel's 70th week, and you have the Great Tribulation. But then Christ returns, and you have a thousand-year reign of Christ, which is what we read in Revelation. <clears throat> the point I was making last year, last week, you know, as we're going through the um, what Haggai says about the shaking of the nations and and. Uh, the new temple. If you don't believe in a millennium, basically it, you, you get rid of all this stuff here. So when when is this great shaking that happens, or and when does this new temple come into effect? Where do they put it? The only place they have is is right here. So the great shaking is the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD by the Romans. And when we're talking about the new temple, which is what we'll talk about today, it has to be Herod's temple, because there is no other temple after that. Um, but if you have a millennium, then you look at Ezekiel. There's like six chapters in Ezekiel that talks about a temple that will be constructed that doesn't match any that have previously been constructed. So, to me, we believe in the millennium because it says so in Revelation. And when you go through all the prophets and the prophecies, that timeline gives you a place to explain everything pretty clearly. And that just confirms the fact that there is a millennium. And being premillennial means Christ returns at the beginning of that period of time to establish his kingdom. So, that's the way we're interpreting scriptures. Otherwise, you have to either ignore passages or 
basically say this prophecy is all <coughs> it's all hyperbole. You know, he's he, you know, um, we talked about verses six. He's going to you know a little. I'm going to shake the heavens and the earth, all the nations. What did that happen in seventy A.D.? No, if they, but if you say it happened, then then it has to be a hyperbole rather than literal. So. Just wanted to go back up and, and cover that a little bit. So he's talking, he's answering the question, you know, this temple that we're building now is so small, so plain, we're disappointed in it. And so God's saying, no, my temple will be glorified. And so we ended uh, last time in verse 7. It talks about, all the nations will come uh, with their wealth and they'll fill this house with glory, says the Lord of hosts. So uh, we're starting again now in verse 8. It says, The silver is mine and the gold is mine, declares the Lord. The latter glory of this house will be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts. And in this place I shall give peace, declares the Lord of hosts. So all silver, all gold belongs to God. So when Christ returns in the millennium, the nations come to worship. It's not their gold, it's God's gold. And so God can have them bring as much of the gold to Jerusalem to, to put into the temple as he desires. And we saw last week looking at Isaiah chapter 60, there's a couple passages that, that talk about the nations bringing their gold to Jerusalem and bringing all this fine wood that was used for the paneling on the inside of the temple and bringing that to Jerusalem. And so this makes sense that, the, that we have uh, God saying the silver is mine, the gold is mine, and they will bring it uh, to Jerusalem. And the result of that is in verse 9, the latter glory of this house will be greater than the former. <clears throat> now the term this house does not refer to a specific building. So it can apply to whatever building happens to occupy the location of the temple <coughs> at that time. So let's just go in Haggai 2. Let's turn back and look at verse 3. Somebody like to read that for us. Who of you is left who saw this house in its former glory? How does it look to you now? Does it not seem to you like nothing? Okay. This house or this temple in verse 3, what does that refer to? Which building? Solomon. Right. It, it refers back, how many of you saw 70 years earlier, saw this house, which was Solomon's temple, in its glory? So this term, this house, was referring back to Solomon's temple. So now in our verse, you know, it's talking about they're looking at this house as the building they're making. And so now in verse 9, the latter glory of this house will refer to a future temple, which is it's the one to describe by Ezekiel. We're not going to look at it because Ezekiel chapter 40 through 48 go through the 
gives us a description of this temple in almost excruciating detail. <laughs> what happened? Was it packed away? Was it just demolished? What, what took place there? Which one? The old Solomon's oh. Temple. Solomon's Temple was torn down. And was it then carried away? Was, yeah. it, was the stuff still they, there? They, they carried away all the gold and the silver and the bronze, all the valuable metal. Um, I think they, the stones were built, torn down, so it, it was overlooking the, uh, the valley there, and I think a lot of the rocks, the stones and things got tossed into the valley, yeah, along with the wall was destroyed as well. And Solomon's temple is the one that, when it was dedicated, the, the Shekinah glory came, came and filled into it. to Solomon's temple. Right. But Herod's temple, it never did, did it? Not that I know of. You know, and that's... I remember in the past. Right. So, you know, he's talking about the glory of the temple. You know, and, and there's really two components to that glory. <laughs> that's what I was thinking. Too. Yeah, so, so one is the Shekinah glory, the glory of God, the brilliance, of, you know. You know, they, they couldn't even get close to the temple because of God's presence. Because um, right, that's yeah. exactly what I was thinking. Yeah. Is, are we just talking about the, the riches of the earth and gold and silver? Or are we talking about a spiritual, you know, right. glory of God? Yeah, so, so what are we talking about here when we talk about the glory? You know, Solomon's temple, um, way back when we were in Ezra, I think we looked at the amount of gold, you go back and you read the, the tonnage of gold that went into just the Holy of Holies, which is like a 30-foot room. And I, I think I sat and tried to calculate it out. You're not talking about gold leaf. You're talking about quarter-inch plate. <laughs> you know, and it's almost like they, they couldn't have done the roof because it would have been too heavy to hold up. Um, I mean, there's an immense amount of gold in Solomon's temple. Huge, huge amounts. <clears throat> Um, and so that's the glory of the building so we've got a future temple and he says it will be more glorious than that you know and Debbie mentioned that Solomon's temple you know the Shekinah glory was there is is God's glory in a future temple going to be more glorious than his glory in the previous temple it's the same glory yeah, it's the same. I, I'm thinking along those lines. You know, I mean, his glory doesn't change. So what changes? The building. the building. And that really answers the question. What were they so disappointed over? They were disappointed over the building. And also, the ones who remembered the former glory of the temple... God's Shekinah glory was not in the temple um, when it was destroyed. They never saw the Shekinah glory. That was centuries earlier when the temple was built. So we're talking about the building. <coughs> the greater glory. So the future is what we'll see. Now, was Herod's temple the building more glorious than Solomon's temple. It was beautiful. You know, the, the disciples mentioned to the Lord, look at how beautiful this temple is. And he said, oh, it's going to be torn down. But it did not have the gold and 
the magnificent pillars at the front and all those things that Solomon's temple had. It did not match up. So, again, that could not be the fulfillment of this prophecy. We're looking at a millennial temple where the nations bring her gold and, and it's described in Ezekiel um, that, that meets and satisfies his prophecy. By nations, um, is that referring to the, the Jewish... The tribes? The tribes, yeah. No, it's all the nations of the world will bring. Boy, I, get my chart again. <laughs> so at the second half, so you've got the great tribulational period. And we, we looked at Revelation last time. And it talked about all the judgments on the nations. Um, actually, we'll look at it again in, in the last uh, uh, of the four... Um, Prophecies that, that come through Haggai, so like verse 22. We won't get there today. But Christ returns and destroys, all the armies are gathered together against Jerusalem. Christ destroys them uh, and basically will, uh, the nations will all be forced to submit to, to God's rule, to Christ's rule on earth. And they will bring their wealth, they will come and worship in Jerusalem. And they will bring all their wealth. And so that's where the, the wealth comes from. <clears throat> okay, now going to the last part of verse 9. And he says, In this place I shall give peace, declares the Lord of hosts. So this place is, it can be either looked at as the temple or Jerusalem. It's kind of general. It doesn't specifically say the temple, but Jerusalem. And there's kind of two ways of, of again, of interpreting this, and a lot of it depends on your, your eschatology. You know, um, One is, you know, Jesus died in Jerusalem to bring peace between God and man. And that's true. And we can look at it. <coughs> excuse me. Let's look at a couple of prophecies. Let's look at, well, Isaiah chapter 9 and verse 6. <clears throat> Isaiah 9 6. Would someone like to read that for us? For a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, and the government will rest on his shoulders, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. Okay, so this is the the prophecy of the coming of the Messiah, the child will be born to us. You know, very, very firm, yeah, it's a famous Christmas yeah. verse. Um, and, yeah, in Christ we call the Prince of Peace. He'll bring peace. Um, and then also, we, let's go to Colossians chapter 1, verses 19 and 20. You should all know this one because we've been going over it. In church, right? <laughs> Colossians 1. Yeah, it's been, it's been a few weeks ago, a few months ago. Colossians 1, verses 19 and 20. Would someone like to read those for us? For God was, go ahead. <laughs> for God was pleased to have all his fulfillness dwell in him, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. 
Okay? God is, Jesus has made peace. He's reconciled all things to God. So we have peace made in this place uh, with the death of Christ. Now, again, if you're all-millennial or post-millennial, you have to say this is what this refers to because there is no future millennium. So it has to refer to Christ making peace on the cross. And so they would interpret it that way. <clears throat> now, the rest of this passage we've been looking at, <coughs> excuse me, and it's set in the millennium. So is this fulfilled in the millennium? So let's look at a couple of passages. Let's look at Zechariah chapter 9. If you remember, Zechariah is prophesying about the same time as Haggai. Zechariah chapter 9, would someone like to read verses 9 and 10? Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout in triumph, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. He is just and endowed with salvation, humble and mounted on a donkey, even on a colt, the pole of a donkey. I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim, and the horse from Jerusalem, and the bow of war will be cut off. And he will speak peace to the nations, and his domination will be from sea to sea. And from river to the ends of the earth. Okay. Verse 9 refers to the first advent. <clears throat> and this passage describes the triumphal entry where Christ comes into Jerusalem riding on the colt to full of the donkey. Verse 10 describes the second advent where he comes, as it says in Revelation 19, on a white horse followed by the armies of heaven. And he will destroy the nations. And as a result of his rule, he will bring peace. So it talks about cutting off the chariot, cutting off the horse, the bow of war will be cut off, and he'll speak peace to the nations. So this is a peace that results from basically um, a total um, destruction of the armies of, of the nations. Um, and it talks about his dominion will be from sea to sea. So he'll establish peace and enforce the peace. So let's look also at Micah chapter 4. I'm testing your knowledge of the minor prophets. <laughs> Micah chapter 4. Almost having to sing the song here. I yeah. Yeah. What did you say? I was she, singing the song in my head. Yes. <laughs> Micah chapter 4. Someone would like to read verses 3 and 4. He will judge between many peoples and render decisions for mighty distant nations. Then they will hammer their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will not lift up sword against nation, and never again will they train for war. Each of them will sit under his vine, under his fig tree, with no one to make them afraid, for the mouth of the Lord of hosts has spoken. Okay, so this refers to the 
uh, millennial kingdom period. Christ will again um, be the judge. He'll be the ruler. He'll rule with a rod of iron, and no one will, the nations will not fight with each other. Um, and this is that famous phrase, they'll hammer their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. I think that verse is actually on the United Nations building. Which, if you're post-millennial or amillennial, it's appropriate because that's the period we're in right now. But we know better than that because... Yeah, people are still shitting at each other all over the world. Uh, yeah. So, again, we'll see no more war uh, or fear of war. Um, just for a note, Isaiah chapter 2, verse 4 is almost identical to this. So I don't know if Micah was repeating what Isaiah prophesied or vice versa, but... Uh, but there will be peace because Christ will come and he'll be the absolute ruler and he will maintain peace. <coughs> Just to give an example of that, you can see um, like Russia versus the Soviet Union. So you have Russia and then you had all these little small autonomous nations around that were part of the Soviet Union. And there was basically peace within those little nations and between those little nations because Russia was the big brother that made sure that they um, didn't fight with each other. Right now, Russia is occupied with invading the Ukraine. Tazakhstan and uh, um, Kyrgyzstan have been fighting with each other over a border dispute. Um, Armenia and as Bekistan or something like that. They've been fighting with each other over border disputes. Well, after the Soviet Union dissolved, there was many of these countries had tribal warfare and, and civil wars going on because Russia wasn't there to make sure that they all behaved. In the millennium, Christ will rule with a rod of iron and he will make sure that they all behave, whether they want to or not. <laughs> he will judge between the nations. And they're... There will be at least no warfare, no peace. The peace in that respect. <clears throat> okay, so that finishes up the second message. We can start to introduce the third message, and that starts in verse 10. <clears throat> so looking at verses 10 and 11. On the 24th of the ninth month, in the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came to Haggai the prophet, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, ask now the priests for a ruling. So the date is the 24th of the ninth month. And according to one of my commentaries, this is December 18, 520 B.C. The second message was on the 21st day of the seventh month. So that was almost two months earlier. So we got a two-month break here between... Verses 9 and 10. And this was the time of year. Okay, so we're talking about between October and December. This is when they would plant their barley. They would plant their winter wheat. So the seed would be in the ground, and then they'd get the rains that would come during the winter. Um, and thus, in the springtime, on Passover, 
one of the things they offered up was first fruits, which was usually barley. So the barley would be ripe by the time of Passover. So that's how their agricultural year fit into this. <coughs> the other thing that fit into this two-month gap is Zechariah and his first message. So let's turn to Zechariah chapter 1, verse 1. Someone like to read that for us. In the eighth month of the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came to the prophet Zechariah, son of Jerichiah, the son of Gideon. Okay. So, Haggai's message was, second message was in the seventh month. His third message is in the ninth month. And Zechariah's message is in the eighth month. So that's kind of how they fit together here. Um, so it's, it's in this gap here. Um, now, one of the things about this message of Haggai, this third one, is it's not specifically directed toward Zerubbabel, Joshua, and the remnant of the people, like the first two were. You know, they specifically went to them. <coughs> Excuse me. So Haggai is really asking the priests to answer questions about the law. So in verse 12, we get the first question. It says, if a man carries holy meat in the fold of his garment and touches bread with this fold or cooked food, wine or oil or any other food, will it become holy? And the priest answered and said, no. So it talks about carrying meat in the fold of a garment. And they didn't have pockets. I mean, I love pockets. I've got, a, I've got a dress shirt that I don't wear because I can't put my glasses anywhere. If I put them in my pants pocket, what's going to happen? They're going to get bust. Yeah, they're going to get bent, broken. Um, they didn't have pockets. So they talked about this fold of the garment. Um, and I remember reading about that somewhere in the past. <laughs> Let's turn back to Nehemiah chapter 5. So I had looked at this before. Nehemiah chapter 5. He's dealing with one of the issues, I think at this time was the... This is when the Jews were enslaving each other. Uh, he condemned that, got them to stop, and then... They made a covenant not to do it again, and then he pronounced a curse on them. And that's Nehemiah chapter 5, verse 13. would like to read that for us. I also shook out the folds of my robe and said, In this way may God shake out of their house and, house and possessions anyone who does not keep their promise. So much such a person be shaken out and emptied. At this, the whole assembly said, Amen, and praised the Lord. And the people did as they had promised. Okay. So the, the commentary said they would actually, somehow they would have folds and things in their garments, and they would carry personal items in there. You know, I've got keys and a knife and things like the pocket knife and things that I carry around. And they would have them in a fold somehow in their garment. And so what Nehemiah did was he, he got up in front of everybody and just... Dumped it all out. And he says, you know, you don't keep this garment or you don't keep this covenant. God's going to do this to you. He's just going to dump you out. And so that was the curse. Um, 
Now, going through Haggai, none of the commentaries said anything about the fold of the garment. And I thought, well, I'll, I'll look up the Hebrew word and see how it's used. And almost universally, it was translated wing. You know, the wings of the seraphim, the wings of... <laughs> I thought, that doesn't help. <laughs> so, so, that's, so anyways, we've got... We're asking about carrying meat in your garment, wrapped up in your garment, which I'm thinking, man, that would be messy. But maybe it was dried. Maybe it was dried or already. <laughs> I don't think they dried these. Yeah, this is consecrated meat. Yeah, so it's holy. This is holy meat. Let's let's go back and look at Leviticus chapter six. I think it's fresh meat. It may have been boiled. But that's about it. They tended to boil the meat a lot, I think, for eating. So, Leviticus chapter six. Uh, would like to someone like to read verses twenty four through twenty seven. The Lord said to Moses, "Say to Aaron and his sons, these are the regulations for the sin offerings, and the sin offerings must be slaughtered before the Lord in the place the burnt offerings are slaughtered. It is most holy." The priest who offers it shall eat it. It is to be eaten in the sanctuary area, in the courtyard of the tent of meetings. Whatever touches any of the flesh will become holy. And if any of the blood is splattered on a garment, you must wash it in the sanctuary area. Okay. So some of the offerings were given. The priest could eat them. They could take them home. The family could eat them. Not this particular meat. It's consecrated. Only the priest could eat it. And they could only eat it within the temple complex. Now, they couldn't remove it from the temple complex. So it's sanctified, it's set apart. But you notice in verse 27, it says, anyone or actually anything that touches its flesh shall become consecrated. So the, the flesh is in the fold of the garment. The garment is wrapped around this meat. So the garment is consecrated. The garment is holy. Because it's touching the meat. So the question now is, suppose you come up with a garment which is holy because it's touching the meat, and if it touches something else, does that become holy? Does it transfer the holiness to the second item? And what's the priest's answer? It says no. no, it doesn't. Now there's there's not a verse that says specifically that it doesn't become translate, uh, become holy. But there's no verse that says it does. So it's kind of like a, I don't know if you call it an argument from silence, but there's nothing that says it, this, this second thing becomes holy, just the first thing. So let's look at the second question. Uh, in verse 13. And Haggai says, if one who is unclean from a corpse touches any one of these things, will the latter become unclean? And the priest answered and said, it will become unclean. So in this case, you've got a person who is unclean from touching a dead body. Let's turn back to the book of Numbers. So in Numbers chapter 9, someone like to read verses 6 and 7. 
Egyptian, so that they could not observe Passover on that day. So they came before Moses and Aaron on that day. Those men said to him, Though we are unclean because of the dead persons, why are we restrained for presenting the offering of the Lord at this at its appointed time among the sons of Israel? Okay. Let's just stay in numbers for a little while. <laughs> um, so here we see they were unclean because of the contact with a dead body. Um, and they couldn't take Passover. The, as it turns out, God said through Moses, they can take it a month later. So God did provide for them. Well, let's turn in Numbers to chapter 19. Some I'd like to read verses 14 through 16 here. Numbers 19, 14 through 16. This is the law when someone dies in a tent. Everyone who comes into the tent and everyone who is in the tent shall be unclean seven days. And every open vessel that has no cover fastened on it is unclean. Whoever is in the open field touches someone who is killed with a sword or who died naturally or touches a human bone or a grave shall be unclean for seven days. Okay, so it's pretty easy to become unclean because of a dead body or a grave. Um, I think when Jesus condemns the Pharisees, he calls them un unmarked graves. They were making other people unclean because they'd stumble over them. So that was this is what it's a reference to. So again, stay in, stay in numbers here. Um, so if this unclean person touches anything, will that become unclean? Well, yes, obviously, they, they, we've already mentioned that. So looking in, ver in Numbers chapter 19, would someone like to read verse 22? Furthermore, anything that the unclean person touches shall be unclean, and the person who touches it shall be unclean until evening. Okay, so here's a clear statement. If you've, if you've been in a tent where someone dies, you're unclean. Whatever you touch then becomes unclean. So the answer is pretty clear, pretty obvious in this case. There's no arguing from silence on this one. Uh, if you're unclean, everything you touch becomes unclean. And then if I touch that, I become unclean. And then you become unclean, yes. And, until evening? Until evening. Okay. The has made a, I, I read it in several places. This is like disease. You can, content, you, you can spread disease easy. You cannot spread health. If I'm healthy, I can't touch you and make you healthy. But if I've got a cold, I can touch you and you can get the cold. So it's, it's like disease being spread. It's like the apples in the barrel. Yeah, rotten apples. Um, so this is... And so it, in the next verses, we won't get to it today because we're out of time, but he'll apply this principle. But before we go there, let's turn to Matthew chapter 8. Matthew, Matthew chapter 8. Matthew chapter 8, someone like to read verses 2 and 3 for us. And that the leprosy came and knelt before him and said, Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. Jesus reached out his hand and touched the man. I am willing, he said. Be clean. Immediately he was cured of his leprosy. Okay. 
This is exactly the opposite of everything we just read. <laughs> this, is, this is sovereign grace versus life under the law. It's exactly opposite. Exactly opposite. I thought that's marvelous to see that. Yeah, this half was able to the girl. Well, he was able to. This half was able to. There's something different. There, it, there's something yeah. really different. Very clear. He could go and touch and make you healthy. Nobody else can. That was only, only Christ. And he touched it unclean, and he did not become unclean. Mm-hmm. He remained holy. So. Okay, well, we need to close there. Um, Brian, would you like to close in prayer for us? Heavenly Father, we want to thank you for this teaching and for Daryl and his studying and bringing it to us. And we want to thank you for your healing touch. And please be with Robert in this next hour. And open our minds and hearts to receive your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Amen.